0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Moving into the Future. Today, I am joined by my good friend, Andrew Fulsham, from Walsh Movers in Boston. I know Andrew through the Office Moving Alliance, OMA, and uh, we are part of the Young Leaders Group together. Um, He's one of, you know, without a doubt, the best people in the industry and and a good friend of mine. I'm happy to have him on, and not only is he one of the best people in the industry, but he is also a veteran, and in honor of uh, Veterans Day tomorrow, we're recording this on a Thursday. Uh, I wanted to have him on to to have a conversation. So, Andrew, thank you for joining us, my friend. Oh,
1: thanks for having me on,
0: Jack. It's a privilege. Yeah, no, really, it's 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 all my privilege because I've gotten to know you over the last year, and uh, you really are one of a kind, and you're one of the good guys in this business, and uh, and I'm happy to know you and. You know, the fact that you're a veteran just just adds to that and you do so much. And, and we'll talk about it today, you know, for veterans. Um, but, you know, just to start, I, I've talked to you about this, you know, a couple times just in, in passing and, and not really sat down in this type of forum where we, we can go into depth about it. But you know, tell me about your time in the military. You know, how did you make that decision? Because that's a that's a massive decision, obviously. Do you come from a military family or anything like that? You know, what was that? Uh, what was that like for you when you were a young man?
1: Yeah, so it was um, it was a life changing decision. It was probably one of the better things that I've done in my life. And I graduated high school in 2000. Um, I was really big into arts. Um, I went to the Art Institute of Boston. Uh, 2000 to 2001, majored in fine arts. I was always good at art. I was always good with computers and and stuff like that. And I was horrible in other aspects of my life. Um, I wasn't physically fit. I was 6'3", 127 pounds uh, when I graduated high school. Um, So there was a lot of things, a lot of qualities that I saw in other people that I wanted to have. Um, and I was only good at a couple things. I wasn't well-rounded, and it was, I think it was in February of uh, 2001. I was at the Art Institute of Boston. I was working on a project, and I said, you know, I'm just going to be the same person as I am now 10 years from now, 20 years from now, so I dropped out of college. Um, I went down to the recruiting office uh, to join the Navy. My father was in the Navy, and 78. He was in naval aviation. So I said, you know what? I'm going to join the navy, see the world, be a better person, um, have have an organization to push me to be better. Um, so I, I went down there. They said, uh, you can't join the navy. You need to gain 50 pounds. <laughs> so they put me in a three month delayed entry program um, in 2001. I started that in the uh, late spring, early summer of 2001. I um, I gained 56 pounds in three months. Wow. I was yeah I was on a PT regiment. Um, it was a it was a pretty good feat, you know. And I wasn't able to do any pushups at the start. I had to be able to do 20 pushups before I could get in. I had to run a mile and a half. So I worked on that, and I had the recruiters, you know, push me and bring me into this this group that they were a part of, you know, um, you know, this brotherhood. Uh, so. I did that, and then I was scheduled to go into into boot camp in September. Then, you know, the attack um, on September 11th happened. I was in boot camp ten days after that, so it was a pretty intense experience. Um, probably one of the best things that I've ever done, you know. Um, and it just made me realize that whatever you think that you can't do, your limits. Are eighty percent greater than what you think they are, so um, you know that really helped me throughout the Navy and throughout my personal life and and professional life now um, so I went I went through boot camp in two thousand and one went down to Pensacola for um, a school which is a another level of training for aviation mechanics um, and then in I think it was February of 2002, I went to Virginia and I was um, based in Oceania, Virginia. I learned F-14 mechanics, the Top wow. Gun, you know, the plane that you see in Top oh, Gun yeah. and all that stuff. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so I worked on that for three and a half years. I was deployed in um, 2003 um, on the USS Harry Truman. And what I learned in there was I was I was in a mechanic division Uh, structural and hydraulic mechanics, but they also pushed me into um, aviation logistics, scheduling the aircraft, scheduling maintenance, um, understanding that you have a mission, you have assets, you have materials, and you need to make all that work together to achieve your goal. And it sounds kind of crazy, but going from naval aviation to commercial moving, you think it's a gigantic leap. It's really not that big of a leap because instead of aircraft, you have trucks. Instead of aviation mechanics, you have auto mechanics. Instead of pilots, you have drivers. So um, I was able to take all the fundamentals that I learned in the Navy and apply it to, to commercial moving.
0: Yeah. And that does make sense. You mentioned it as far as like you know the the three uh, pillars that you mentioned. There are three boxes as far as you know in aviation mechanics. There's the obviously the machinery. You know there's the people aspect, and then there's material aspect. That's very similar to to how we operate in commercial moving. So there's definitely that par- parallel. But I wanted to to get back because that is a really interesting time when you entered in two thousand one. There in the spring of two thousand one, and again you you did it prior to obviously 9-11 and, and the terrorist attack and everything like that. And, you know, that was a time too when there was this um, moment of immense nationalism and, and for you to already be involved in that, you know, prior and it being a massive shift in your life and your entire psyche, you know, changed just abundantly in, in such a short period what was that like afterwards? You know, what was the, um, how How did it shift even after that? Because you had already made an initial shift, but then for 9-11 to happen, you know, what was that second shift like where now we're going to be, potentially could be a company at war and the, the stakes have been raised, if you will. You know, what was that like? Um, it, was, it was
1: intense, um, but I think that it wasn't as tense as you would, think that it is you know you get into a system in the military where you focus on your task on your role on your part of the team so you you learn this in training that you don't really get overly emotional you just you just focus on what you were trained to do and you execute it um I I think what enhanced my my time in the service being you know to during a wartime is just the intense connection between the other people that I was, um, you know, stationed with, you know, my military co-workers, if you will, right. uh, because you, you developed a, a lifetime bond with those people, you know, and you're looking out for them, they're looking out for you, you're all working towards a common goal. And that goal is really, you know, to defend the United States, especially during that time. So it's, um, you know, it gives you a lot of pride and a lot of perspective. And one of the struggles when I got out of the Navy was you don't really have that too much in the civilian world. When you get into a career, you get into an industry, um, whatever the industry is, there's a lot of individual goals. Right uh, individual achievements. And that's hard to transition. That's hard for a lot of military, you know, personnel to transition from, um, you know, the military responsibilities in that community and culture, and then getting into, um, you know, corporate life where a lot of it is individual driven. And that's what I really love about, um, you know, the future leaders that we belong to. That's the first organization that I've, I belong to where I feel like it is more of a community and brotherhood and sisterhood where, you know, if I need something, I can reach out to you guys. I'm here to make you better. You're here to make me better. We're all working together and bringing ourselves to, um, to a great level of success. So.
0: Absolutely. And I agree with you too. You know, it is completely unique to our industry and and what we're doing as a whole with the young leaders group and and future leaders group, I should call it, uh, because that's right. The camaraderie that we've developed through that is, is significant. And again, it's, it's unlike anything, professionally speaking, that, you know, I've ever had just in the sense to, well, it's, it's, it's multifaceted. Like, obviously we're all in the same industry, right? We do commercial moving together And, you know, we, we, we work for our companies and have specific roles at our companies, but we're all just incredibly good people too, within the group. Like it's a very high quality individual group where then we come together, um, as future leaders, uh, to make significant changes and innovations, uh, you know, with, within the commercial moving and, and workplace strategy world. So it's really cool in that regard. And, you know, I'm, I'm, kind of honored and and humbled to hear you say that as far as the camaraderie that you felt in the military, uh, parallels to that, because, uh, I could imagine, you know, when you're in that world where the, the mission, like you said, you know, they keep you so focused and so aligned to the mission that regardless of what is going on, you know, you, you have your, your, your brothers and sisters in the military and the Navy who you're working with on this mission on the, with this role, for the greater good. And I wanted to ask about that too, as far as when you were on the SS Harry Truman, where were you stationed when that was happened? Was when that was happening? And speaking of Top Gun, were you like when the jets are taken off? Like are you like, you know, one of the guys who are there, like, you know, uh like, you know, making sure it, it takes off and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, of course. Yeah. So the the Harry Truman is um what we call an East, East Coast ship, you know. So it's it's stationed in uh, Norfolk, Virginia. Um, it patrols uh, the Atlantic. It goes through the Atlantic. It goes um, England, Ireland, uh, all of Europe, uh, Persian Gulf. So that's that was our area of responsibility. So when we got deployed um, in late two thousand two, it was like December fifth, two thousand two. And into 2003, we crossed the Atlantic. Uh, the first port that we hit was um, England. Uh, then we went to Greece, and then we were in the Med for an extended period of time during the during the invasion, the Iraqi invasion. So that was that was our our kind of uh, patrol area. Um, in my role there, um, I was on the aviation side, so. I was on the flight deck, you know, 10 hours out of the day. Um, yeah, yeah. I was, um, my first responsibility, uh, my, my first job assignment. When I went into, um, our squadron, which was VF 32, um, they put me in the line division, the line division is basically general maintenance. So we would check the oil, the fuel, we would tie down the aircraft, wash the aircraft, we would do the full, uh, daily inspections. Um, when the pilots arrived on the flight deck to fly a mission, um, we would brief them on their fuel load, the uh, condition of the aircraft, and we would strap them in, get them ready, close the canopy and and I was one of um, the plane captains that would be given the hand signals to the pilot for them to start the engine for the aircraft to to cycle the um, the air and the power and remove that and then get the engines up and running, uh, check their, yeah, check their flight surfaces. And then we would pass them on to, um, the ship, the ship employees that have the yellow shirts and the green shirts on the deck that then put them on a catapult and launch them off. Right. Yeah. So I was, I was on the, on the flight deck for, um, I'd probably say 90% of the time that I was out to sea we were responsible for launching the aircraft and then recovering the aircraft um, it was a unbelievable experience
0: yeah i could only imagine obviously i've seen top gun and uh yeah. to, to experience it in real life has to be quite quite so the, it's the unbelievable.
1: yeah it, it, it's unbelievable and it's it's very shocking because you have double hearing protection on yeah. The aircrafts are so loud. Yeah. There's our squadron had 10 aircraft. Um we were on the fantail of of the ship and there was eight other squadrons there and they had anywhere between 4 and 10 aircraft. So it's extremely busy. You got to pay attention to what you're doing and um again that's another good life lesson um just just to be constantly alert and aware. Um, I remember the first time I went on the ship prior to the deployment. Um, this was the very first time I've ever been on the flight deck. It's a little disorientating. It's so loud. You can't hear anything. You can't hear that the engine for this aircraft is, is on and going and blowing out exhaust because all the engines around you, you right. know, so, so, you're limited on your senses you know you just gotta you just gotta rely on your vision um and i walked right into the jet blast oh. of an f-18 <laughs> yep and there was a gentleman that was for the f-18 squadron that was um you know you stand over by the jet blast and you wave your fingers like this so everybody yep. knows that the the engine is on and it was the first time i, I walked right behind that that aircraft and he grabbed me and threw me on 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 the ground and covered me and grabbed the um you know the pad eyes like a hook on the deck as as the jet was you know the jet blast was blowing over you know both of us and if he didn't do that i would have went off the side of the ship i was going to say that'll
0: send you into the atlantic there
1: which is about 90 feet yeah and it's um it's kind of crazy to think about that and to think about all the different experiences with myself and, you know, my shipmates on, on how dangerous it is. Because all that's happening at two o'clock in the morning, yeah. you know, So because <laughs> so, I was on the night shift, which is one of the most dangerous jobs. In yeah.
0: I, I mean, being on sea at night, it's completely yeah. black. Yeah. And you can't use...
1: Um, high intensity lighting so all of your flashlights are uh yellow red um green so it's it's wow. very low visibility yeah and it's um it's exciting it was a great experience but knowing that you have other people on the ship that are looking out for you because you all have to work together absolutely because somebody can make a mistake like I did and they could get seriously injured or you know, lose their life. And, and you're relying on on your shipmates that are, that are deployed with you to look out for you. And you have to look out for that.
0: Yeah, that is something else. And you're absolutely right. And again, it parallels to moving because I've always said this to people, you know, moving and, and everything we do, not just moving, but like furniture installations, uh, you know, IT work, whatever it may be, it's very human oriented. So you are dealing with, on a typical project, at least 10 people involved, probably more, probably 20 if you're talking about the coordinators and yourself and everybody involved, about 20 people, and you have to work. It's imperative that people are working together and communicating and looking out for each other and, you know, double-checking things and all of those things. And uh, again, there is that parallel. Obviously, the stakes are far lower, but... uh, it's it's that similar parallel there that uh, that makes so much sense. So um, that is crazy. See, I didn't know that, and that's why I'm mean, I, I enjoy these conversations, and uh, this podcast is so great. Um, as far as once you once you were done, oh, I wanted to ask one quick thing: How long were you deployed for?
1: So um, g- general uh, deployment is six months. I think we were out for about seven months because we were we were. You know, deployed during Comets, so they can extend that. Um, Our our ship was out uh, for 96 days without a port, which, if you live on a ship, that's a long time.
0: Yeah, uh, that's what I'm thinking.
1: Yeah, yeah, 16-hour days for 96 days straight is what we worked. You know, during during that conflict. Um, You know, but there have been you know naval vessels that have been out for 10 months, you know, instead of six or seven months, but the standard deployment is the six month deployment out to sea.
0: Wow. Wow. That is something else. So uh, once you got back, you know, obviously you wound up at Walsh. Now, how did you wind up at Walsh? Uh, You know, remind me and and tell our listeners. Sure. So
1: I got, I got out of the Navy um, 2005. Um, I was planning on getting into hydraulic mechanics because I, I did hydraulic mechanics for, for the aircraft and I love doing it. It's exciting, uh, you know, field. So I was going to get out um, and be a hydraulic mechanic. So I went to the local union, local four in Boston uh, for heavy equipment operators. And unfortunately, when I was in, in 2004, I had a shop accident and I lost partial vision in my right eye. Well, apparently you can't operate heavy machinery if you have impaired vision. So they said, "Hey, thanks for applying, but um, you know you can't be a mechanic on heavy machinery." So I then transitioned into um, Director of Logistics for a private airline, so I was still in aviation. Um, I worked there from 2007 to 2013, but I was working as a project manager for Walsh movers from 2005 uh, to 2013 you know, nights and weekends. Um, my father has been in the office moving and um, furniture sales industry since 76. He had a um, small office furniture company called Folsom's Office Furniture. And uh, they refurbished, you know, Steelcase M-Wall and Herman Miller Ethos Space and all that stuff. So I grew up doing that. Um, I joined the Navy, came, came back from the Navy, worked at the airline. Uh, assisted him when he needed another project manager. He was a subcontractor for Walsh Movers. So I was one of the subcontract um, project managers. And then a um, uh, director of logistics um, spot opened up here at Walsh. And I thought moving from running a a, uh, private airline with eight private aircraft going into commercial relocation would be a step back in the stress level, you know? So I said, hey, this is a great opportunity for me. I know the industry, I've been doing it since I was 13, you know, building systems with my father. Um, so I said, hey, this is, this is great for me. Uh, I won't have to work nights and weekends and 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 holidays and be on call 100% of the time.
0: Little bit. And, I, you know, <laughs> and you know
1: what? The commercial relocation industry, I never knew that it was as big and as important as it is, because when you talk to somebody and say, hey, I ran a private airline for seven years, and I coordinated customs and coordinated all the pilots, staffed all the pilots, made sure all the aircraft were up and running, coordinate with maintenance, um, and flew high end executives all around the world, that sounds pretty intense. And to be completely honest with you, my role here at Walsh Movers as the general manager is more intense than doing that. And I never knew that that would be like that. But this industry is much bigger than what people think it is. Uh, A lot of people think moving, okay, well, you just grab a bunch of stuff that people want that they tag and you move it from point A to point B. I've moved some pretty interesting machinery and, and, um, you know, we've moved collectible automobiles we move you know high-end um you know lab equipment just these things that are you look at me go how are you going to move that yep um and it's really interesting that our our industry provides a solution to all that stuff and I, and it's definitely more intense to me than aviation which is kind of mind-blowing when you talk to somebody about it
0: it is, if you talk to, you know, just a civilian uh, or a friend uh, discussing it, they, they would probably have no idea, but it's, um, again, the, the, I mentioned the human orientation of it all, uh, but the technical aspect of it, too, in, in handling these high-value pieces, whether it's, you mentioned cars or laboratory equipment, uh, it's um, it takes a lot of detail and work, and I've been very active in that field recently, like life science and lab work. And uh, I have a meeting later today with a client to go over their move because it's just so technical and it takes so much attention to detail and communication and And how are we doing this? You know, we get a big piece, whatever that piece is, how are we going to move this? And it's, it, it takes a meeting and strategy and, and a technical skill in order to do it. So I definitely understand it. How do you think your military background has helped you in this industry. You know, you mentioned a couple of things as far as staying level-headed and, uh, you know, focusing on the task at hand. Um, you know, what else would you say has helped you? And, and you know, beyond that question, uh, why do you think veterans are good people to hire within the, you know, moving industry as a whole?
1: Sure, so it, it's, it comes down to a simple phrase that you hear in the military all the time, adapt and overcome. So there's all these challenges that you have, whether it's in the military or personal life or in commercial relocation, there's going to be a challenge. There is some people that encounter a challenge and don't know how to overcome that. If you have somebody that has been in the military and has been trained by the military, they know their limits. A lot of a lot of people think their limit is is X, and it's actually eighty percent more than X. Yep. Like I was saying to you before, I was a I was a very frail, weak, you know, tall, skinny, goofy guy that got out of high school. Didn't think I could do anything. You know, um, I graduated. Like I said, I was one hundred and twenty seven pounds. I'm two hundred and forty pounds.
0: I gotta see a picture of this.
1: <laughs> I will send you so many pictures. Yeah. I have great pitches, flight like deck pitches. I have when I first got into the Navy pitches. Yeah. I will send you a bunch of them. Um, but you you learn to to adapt and overcome. And there's no I can't. You say I can't do something in boot camp, you're going to be running for like five days straight. There is no I can't. And like I was telling you before, it's not you personally that has to overcome it. You overcome a challenge with your group, with your team, with your squadron. Um, And I think that when companies hire, um, you know, veterans, they, they get a higher level of, I can do something, you know, you're not going to have a a group of employees that when you say, Hey, we got to move this, um, you know, this hot cell that's, 80,000 pounds, it's all lead, let's get it done guys. And you get a bunch of guys that say, hey, I don't know how to do this, I can't do it. You're gonna get project coordinators that are gonna adapt and overcome. You're gonna get movers that are gonna adapt and overcome. So I think that's the, the, the largest strength of hiring military is discipline and their ability to adapt to a situation and overcome a challenge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I love that. And it is so important, you know, regardless of role within this industry, uh, being, being able to d- adapt and overcome, you know, whether it's a, a mover or a coordinator, project manager, somebody like ourselves in sales, um, that is a key attribute to hold. Uh, so, so that makes a lot of sense. And then, you know, beyond what you've done for the country and in the military and for Walsh, you did start a non-for-profit too called Second Salute. And that kind of correlates within uh, the, or I should say, it combines. You know what you've done in the military and what you do uh, in the moving world. It's uh, essentially you know helping uh, veterans out with uh, different uh, you know furniture opportunities when you're moving and people are uh, disposing of furniture. You're you're able to reuse that and donate it to veterans. Um, you know you also assist with getting veterans necessary you know, equipment and machinery they might need for different dis- disabilities. Uh, can you tell us more about about Second Salute and what you've done there? Sure. So um, it was uh, 2014 when I was
1: working for Walsh. Um, we had a customer uh, in downtown Boston. They had 18 floors of furniture and they had a need to donate it. There was a local um, donation company that would facilitate the donation. Uh, it was so jagged of a, of a system from the move perspective and the donations perspective. They had to bring in all these different charities. They labeled it. It, it increased their move costs by $42,000 for the project because it was so inefficient to do it that way. So after that project, like all major projects that we have, we sat down, uh, we talked about what we learned from the project. And one of the major things that Bill Walsh, the owner of Walsh Movers and myself came up with is that this project, even though it was a success, it failed in a lot of logistic ways because getting the furniture to a donation was so cumbersome. So we said, hey, we can provide a better service to our customer and I'm in the disabled veteran community. And I said, hey, this is a great opportunity. I'll start a nonprofit that supports disabled American veterans. We'll do it as a furniture you know, donation company. And it's gonna help our, help our commercial customers find an alternate to landfill for their products. So what we do is we'll go in, we'll, we'll talk to the customer um, on a standard relocation. They'll have some unwanted furniture. Walsh movers will will remove it. It'll come back to the warehouse and then second salute starts on placement. We have um, a wish list. So we have a whole network here um, in Massachusetts where people can reach out to us and say, we're looking for a TV or a desk chair or a cubicles. And we support um, the the end user for us, which is the veteran. Right. We support them if they need something for their home or for their business. We support organizations who support veterans, um, like Veterans Inc. in Worcester. We had a major clean out of um, Suffolk University. They had 500 dorm room setups Wow. um, that were at the end of their life, which is only like five years because they get totally abused, you know? So we, we pull out 500 setups, which would normally get smashed up and thrown in a landfill. Yep. We were able to take those 500 setups. We delivered them to Worcester, Mass, which is west of Boston, and we got them to Veterans Inc, and they supply, um, you know, veterans with with housing. So they have all these different halfway houses and and you know rehab facilities um, that they provide to veterans with substance abuse problems, and we outfitted all of the all of their homes with this dorm furniture which was perfect for them wow um yeah so that that was great and that was i think it was about 12 trailer loads so wow. 12, 12 trailer loads of furniture that would normally get into a landfill right we were able to help the environment we were able to help the customers cuz now they don't have to pay for disposal and we were able to help the veterans cuz now they have a nice dorm room set up Um, you know, to use while they're through recovery. And I had another instance uh, in Taunton, Mass., which is south of Boston, um, where there was a uh, local church there and uh, the rectory of the church, they were were changing into a halfway house to support veterans with, with substance abuse. And a lot of times when you think of disabled veterans, You think of somebody losing a limb or, you know, losing an eye or something like that. But the majority of people that that I come across in my community um, that has a disability is usually mental, you know, post-traumatic stress uh, that leads to self-medication, you know, alcohol abuse, substance abuse. Right. So there's a lot of that. Uh, that we deal with and we try to support. So I had a, I had a customer, we, um, we cleared out over 200 workstations, um, conference rooms, you know, other, other type of office product. Um, And this halfway house reached out to me. They said, Hey, we're going to launch this in two months and we need your help. We got to furnish the whole place. So what we did was uh, the workstations, they were, they were old Herman Miller workstations. We recycled those we got the scrap value for that. We bought all the beds for the um, halfway house. Uh, there was eight flat-screen TVs that we brought there. We put them up in the rooms. Um, the nightstands were mobile two-drawer pedestals that we used. The the you know the TV stands were credenzas. Their, their um their bureaus was a three-drawer file cabinet. So we repurposed office furniture for a residential setting. Where this halfway house, uh, the church that was supporting it, didn't have to buy any of that stuff. So they, wow. could, they could take their resources and focus it into the property itself or into getting mentors in there, right. um, you know, and helping these veterans. So that's, that's where it's really helped us. Um, and it's a win-win-win. So the customer wins because they reduce their costs for unwanted right. furniture. The environment wins because we're not filling up landfills with, with old office product, and the veteran wins, you know, and the moving company wins too because we're we're able to, to bridge. Uh, the move and the donation, we're able to be that bridge for our customers.
0: Absolutely. Do you guys put a uh, like a dollar amount value to it as far as you know? I, I guess it would look into like depreciated value of the furniture, but like, are you able to say, yeah? You know, we donated this much furniture that was able to save this organization, you know, so much money and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. So what we do is um, at the end of the project, we'll provide um, the end user, whoever donated the the furniture, we'll provide them with a donation report. So it lets them know um, the quantity of stuff that was donated, what was diverted from landfills. Um, There's always a couple things that, uh, it's usually less than 2% that we have to dispose of. Normally it's work surfaces because the the glue content in the work surface, you really can't do much with it. Um, But it's less than 2% that goes into a landfill. Uh, We give them a whole report of where their product went to. Um, Second salute contracts a third party independent appraiser, which is suggested by the federal government. so we take a whole list, we do a, you know, site survey, we get the whole inventory list. We provide that to a third-party independent appraiser. She researches um, common items that are being sold. So say if it's a workstation, she'll, she'll research the market and say, this workstation that's this old, this manufacturer in this condition is going for X amount of dollars. So that is now the fair market value of that product. Um, she provides us with an appraisal that the charity pays for. Um, and then we provide that to the customer. And we take we take that that dollar amount and we put it into the receipt. So it's not just a you know paper receipt. You right, you know, you fill in the amount of what you think it's worth. This is all this is all vetted through through a third party independent appraiser so that us as a charity, we can make sure that we're doing the right thing um, and following the guidance of the IRS and the federal government. And we provide another level of accountability and and, uh, credibility to our customer saying, this is the value of your product. And a professional has assessed that. It's not us assessing it or you assessing it. Third party professional, yeah. A third party, you know independent appraiser assess the value of it. So it works out. It works out great. Um, and our customers are extremely happy of the service that we provide them. And on top of that, we can provide a great service uh, to our veterans. So for example, we had a bunch of furniture, uh, a lot of metal furniture, but it was just not marketable. So it had no, no value left. Uh, there were six high file cabinets with the flipper doors. Nobody yeah. wants those anyway, you yeah. know? So there was, there was zero, paper. there was zero value for that. But what we did was we took those, we trucked them to the scrapyard. they recycled the metal. Um, we took the cash value and we were able to to purchase a scooter for a veteran in the Raynham area. It was a $2,500 oh, I... scooter. Yeah, and she, she had, um, she has emphysema and a bunch of respiratory issues. Um, because the base that she was a drill sergeant on was contaminated and they didn't know it until years and years later. So she has some respiratory stuff. She can't walk, you know, 15 feet without getting winded. Um, She's on her own. She's independent. So she couldn't really transport a scooter and assemble it. Some of them you have to assemble if you're going to transport them in your, you know, SUV or something like that. So we found a company in Florida um, that makes a great product. Uh, you hit a button on it and it it folds out automatically and she can hop right on it and then go into the grocery store or wherever she needs to go. So she still feels independent. Right. You know? um, so we take an unwanted six drawer lateral file cabinet and we convert that into a medical device that's going to help a veteran who served her country uh, that now has some medical issues because of that uh, it helps her to still feel independent and have a good quality of life.
0: So let me ask you this, let's say I'm doing a disposal and I have those type of, you know, metal file cabinets or other items. I could say to a client like, Hey, listen, there's really no value for these. No one's going to use them, but I can take these to a dump and uh, you know, recycle them, strip them. And then, you know, scrap the metal and uh, the, uh, you know, amount of money I get for that can be donated to Second Salute where we're going to find a way to uh, donate it to a a veteran in need, you know, for different uh, machinery or equipment or or, uh, assistance they might need.
1: Yeah, definitely. And we've done that with several of our clients and some of them want to be anonymous and some of them would like... um, the recognition of it, so we do both things. If 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 there's any user that um, would like us to share their name with the veteran, we donate it on behalf of them on their company, um, so they know where it's coming from. If they don't, we just we just say it's an anonymous donor, and we donate it uh, to the veteran on on their behalf. But we do that a lot, and um, as you know, Jack, there's a lot of furniture that gets decommissioning. that's at its end of its life. Oh yeah, of course. And there's a lot of stuff that um, just really is not marketable, but it still has value, it has scrap value. So we take that and we, we convert that into a cash donation. Um, in my hometown of Bridgewater, we had a veteran that, that just got out of the military. He was working for, for FedEx, couldn't make ends meet. Um, they reached out to the local VA, Uh, they contacted me. So we, uh, he had three kids, we took the cash value of the donation, you know, we had a bunch of cubicles, recycle them, take that cash value, and we bought all their kids uh, Christmas presents. So small things like that, um, when you look at something that is unwanted, just because it's 30 years old, you know, and it's, uh, uh, an unwanted piece of furniture, there may be value in it. You right. Know, you know? Right.
0: So yeah. That's do, really great.
1: Uh, yeah. We're able to, to help them out.
0: And, and one last thing I wanted to ask about second salute. Um, you're, you're able to do this in other markets too, right? So like, you know, do you have connections in New York or, or elsewhere? Like, you know, let's say I had a bunch of furniture, uh, you know, from a hotel or a college or something that like you mentioned. And, uh, you know, we wanted to look for a partner on that. Would you be able to help with that?
1: We are, yeah. Yeah, we're able to help on that. It works a little bit differently outside of our market because inside our market, we can take you control have of everything. the connections already, right? Yeah, of course. Right. And we can manage everything outside of our market. Um, like the advanced group, I did, a, I did a donation job with them with uh, Jeff Silverstein years ago. Um, and basically what the local mover does our oma partner does is they do what they normally would do you find a liquidator you sell the stuff you scrap it uh, you recycle it there's going to be some waste Um, you handle everything locally and then we provide you with the means to donate it so it's it's a it's a good system and the most important thing that we focus on is we make sure that the veterans benefit from it obviously and we make sure that it's as seamless as it is in the boston market as it would be in new york because one of the our our major focuses is we don't want it to be difficult for the end user we don't want it to be difficult for them to donate it right so if you if you go down other avenues a lot of the other donation companies that are out there um and people do it for profit too you know And it's much more cumbersome because now they need to find somebody to donate it to. They need to get pictures, description. They need to come back in and make three or four more appointments with the office manager. And it just becomes more of a challenge for the end user. With this, if you had a project in New York, you would do what you normally do. You're already there on site. You already did a walkthrough. You already have liquidators in your market. You're gonna use your connections in your market to convert that unwanted furniture into a cash donation for the veterans That's the easiest way to do it outside the Boston
0: market. Right. That makes sense. Good to know, man. Well, uh, listen, man, this is great. And like I said, I appreciate you so much. You really are just such a a genuine and impressive and, you know, good, good guy. And I'm, I'm happy to call you a friend and a, uh, you know, coworker and, you know, obviously thank you for everything you've done for, not only myself, uh, but you know, for, for the country as a whole, it's all very well appreciated, man. You're, you're a good dude.
1: Thanks so much, Jack. Thanks for having me on the podcast. Appreciate you as well. And you know, we're not friends. We're not friends, Jack. We're family, buddy. That's,
0: that's right. That's right. My brother, Andrew, I appreciate it, man. Looking forward to uh, the next time I get to see you and spend time. And, uh, thanks again for coming on.
1: All right. Thanks so much, Jack. All
0: right. Thanks everybody for listening. Looking forward to next time.